we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and tonight we begin with that 13th verse of that 4th chapter, which I think I told you in the last session I would make chapter 5. If you're a seafaring individual, there is one star that you keep looking for. Which one is it? What's it called? Yes, but it also is called something else by the navigators. It's called the Pole Star. This section here in God's Word is the Pole Star of believers. This is what you navigate by. It's the great spiritual reality of the return of Christ, the hope. This in the theological circles is called eschatology. The word is spelled E-S-C-H. A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. So whenever you hear that word or read that word any place, you'll know that it deals with the last things. Comes from the Greek word eschatos, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S, which means last E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S, meaning last. And the word ology, O-L-O-G-Y, means science. It's science of the last, which transliterated over into what it really talks about is the science of death. So whenever you read the word eschatology or eschatological, in writings, theological works, or anything else, it always means the Theological position of death, the last things, the science of death. There's also another word that I want to give you tonight that you put in your vocabulary and understand when you read it. It's called a euphemism, E-U-P-H-E-M-I-S-M, E-U-P-H-E-M-I-S-M, from you, meaning mild Through the Gospels, as well as in this section that we'll be dealing with tonight, many, many times the word sleep is used for death, and that's a euphemism. It's a mild word for another word that's too painful to use. That's Webster's analysis of it. Again, I feel tonight that the way ministry stands, for the most part, in the corner all by itself when it comes to working the word in this field of eschatology. I suppose only time will tell. That is, when all the eschatological details have been taken care of as to who rightly divided the word and who didn't. I have a new book or booklet put out by Rex Humber, just received it, and the titles are, Why Was I Born? What is Death? Where Are the Dead? What is it like to die? How can I live without you? Are the dead conscious? What will eternity be like? And of course, immediately, if I pick up something like this, I would go to the chapter, Are the Dead Conscious? Naturally, I did that. And this is the last paragraph of that chapter. I think if you read just the last paragraph of every chapter, you got the book. Uh, but this is the last chapter. 
God's word clearly tells us the dead are alive, alert, and active. Period. Now, there you are. Now, here's a man that perhaps has 100 times more following than we have. A man that's one of the rising stars, as they call it, in our country on evangelism. This has just been published, and there it is. Now, we hold entirely opposite view to this. Tonight, we'll be into it again. Again, I read it to you. God's word clearly tells us the dead are alive, alert, and active. And, of course, in the chapter, he says that the people who have died in Christ are in paradise, and the poor other people that have died are that other place. I forget what he called it, you know, where you're semi-burning, but not quite. <laughs> so, also in this chapter, he says that the dead have sensation, they have recognition, they have remembering, they have hearing, seeing, thinking, and learning. Loaded with scripture and loaded with the quotations of a scientist, an MD, who is one of the leading scientists in substantiating the facts of life after death. His name is Dr. Moody. He has him here in this book, and I just saw an ad of a new two volumes coming out by Guidepost, all of them by Dr. Moody, on survival after death, which he has documented by proof from the medical associations in his years in the hospital. So, you just have to sort of work the word and make up your own mind, I guess. People are going to believe what they want to believe. They can't believe beyond what they're taught and until they have an opportunity to hear what I think the way ministry stands for, they can't help but go the route of spiritualism. Because there are signs, miracles, and wonders in the spiritualist field and they can't separate spiritualism from truth or right from wrong. And I think it's real alarming as well as interesting. I don't know how many of you fellows or gals have read this book on Born Again by Charles Colson, who was Nixon's right-hand man for about five, six years. It's a fine piece of work from a general reading point of view. He makes this statement, for 11 years of my life, I've driven with every ounce of energy in my body to do the things in government that I believed might make people's lives better. But in all that time, I cannot point to one single person, not one life, that had actually changed for the better. He was sincere, he was qualified, just a brain, a real committed man. I think that is a real great statement. After he was born again, and of course, word got home to Mama, that was bad. Because Mama said the following when she heard it. My mother was irate. Quote, his father and I raised our boy as a good Christian. He was baptized and confirmed in the Episcopal Church. We taught him every Christian principle. 
imagine saying he's just now become a Christian. Sounds like some of the parents of the way ministry. After he became a Christian, his dad and mom were real angry at him. Because that's what she said. Well, we raised him a Christian. Why, he's been born again all the time. He's a Christian all the time. I think in the advanced class where I do uh, Gert Bahanna, isn't that where I do Gert? Gert Bahanna, I think, makes a statement. She cannot understand how one can be so born again, or the word I, she uses, I forget, so great with the wonderful presence of Christ and never talk about it or be a Christian. Remember, she said, I'd never seen a Bible except under glass, Gutenberg, and nobody had ever talked to me. Therefore, I assume I never met a Christian. One of the great things about this book is the many, many born-again Christians that are in Washington, but they're all underground and they never talk about it. He has records in here of working with men for eight years. After he was born again, they all came out of the knotholes because it was with his birth, new birth, that and a few of the other things that happened, they started having more and more prayer meetings. And then all these people began showing up out of the knotholes of government. One of the many mentions he worked with for eight years side by side, and he never knew he was a Christian, never talked to him about being a Christian. That is the history of the church today. You can work in a factory or shop next to somebody who's born again, and he'll never talk about it. You can use God's name in vain. You can raise hell. You can ridicule Jesus Christ. He'll never say a word to you. Those documentations in here just blew my mind. Just fantastic. He himself was, after he was born again, was very full of fear. So it was real interesting to me, some of the things. Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Arthur Burns, came out of the hole and so forth, and oh, a lot of others. There had been a prayer breakfast in the basement of the White House. All the years when Colson was with the president, walked by the very door all the time, never knew there was a prayer breakfast in that White House. Six, seven years. Walked by the door all the time. Never knew it. As a matter of fact, he said the president didn't know it. Fred Rhodes, Deputy Administrator of Veterans Administration. I knew Fred was Vice President of the Southern Baptist Convention and involved in church activities. Been very close on Capitol Hill for years. However, he never discussed his religion with me. Didn't know anything about it. The language of the Christians we were meeting nowadays frightened her as well it might. Accepting Christ, in Christ, unintentionally, they were creating a mystique about what it is really the simplest decision each man or woman makes in life. The language which is so meaningful to one who has made the decision can be as scary as the words of a secret society initiation to those who haven't and can sound spiritually arrogant. That's true. You know, we can use terms like renewed mind, born again, a lot of these others, and to those that don't know God's word or know God or his word or care about it, it's like a secret society initiation. And it'll sound spiritually arrogant to them. 
and he was t telling uh, about talking to people, and he said, I don't know, probably hurt them, but I have no intention of telling them. It's none of their business because it's my private conversion. And then he said, I stared for a long moment in the crackling fire. I hadn't even told my children or my parents, nor my closest and oldest friend. No one but Tom Phillips, Doug Coe, and a few others in the fellowship knew. Better that way, I mused. If it was a foxhole conversion, the drowning man grasping for a straw, and I slipped and fell when Watergate passed by, as someday it must, at least it would only be between God and me and a handful of others. And that the reason he shut up is because of fear. People always clam up because they're afraid to talk. But isn't it funny? They'll talk about everything else except the one thing that really matters in life. They won't talk about it. They talk politics. They talk everything else. But they won't tell them that they're Christians born again of God's spirit. Really something. And he simply says in here, I think it must be pride. This is why, no matter how much of the word you may work, there are just some people never going to accept it. They're never going to believe it because Satan's blinded their eyes and they're full of pride and they're full of fear and they couldn't afford to change as far as they're concerned. In verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. The word but again sets this now in contrast with that which has preceded. And the word I here can be either I or we according to texts. In verse 14, it says, for if we, verse 15, for this we, that we, verse 17, then we, and so shall we, one, two, three, four, we's in this section and the I in verse 13. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 13, it says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren. In chapter 11, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual matters, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble. Those are all the places in the word of God that talk about not being ignorant. 
it gives us one, two, three, four, five, six with the one in Thessalonians, doesn't it? I checked Bollinger and I forgot what he said. Did he say it's I or we? He said we. You have texts on both sides and I'm trying to show you all of them and if you want to take the time, which I did check the context, you can have the privilege of doing it. I think from a text point of view, I would go with the we here. The word would is the word thalema, which means desire. For we desire not. Again, I don't know how much you've worked any of these words in the past, but you should have. Because I know you got words like thalema, bulamai, which I've taught you previously. And this word thalema here fits beautifully. But we would not have you to be ignorant. We do not desire. And the word desire is an emotional. It's not just a rational intellectual thing, but it's an emotional will, an emotional would, emotional desire. And the emotional is always stronger than just the rational will. You know, you can have a cold will. But when you have an emotional desire, a willing emotionally, it's much stronger. And that's this word. But I desire with emotion, real heart, not to have you ignorant. This first verse here relates back to something previously and begins to set the pattern for correcting a misunderstanding and to relieve undue concern or anxiety and it's going to give specific and detailed information again he uses the word brethren I would not have you ignorant brethren Concerning, the word concerning is the Greek word peri, P-E-R-I, preposition, meaning as regards. And this word means round about a center. We need to memorize some of this stuff. Either that or you'll be looking it up a lifetime. To me, it's very, very interesting that this word is used here, concerning. Because Euclid, the mathematician, used this P-E-R-I, concerning, in a circle with a point in the center. And that's what it means, roundabout. I gave you as regards, as regards. Now, we would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, roundabout, concerning. What's roundabout? The word means roundabout a central point. 
the central point here is going to be the return of Christ. He's the center of this thing, and all this is going to wind around him. That's why that word concerning is absolutely beautiful. Them which are asleep. This is the circle round about the return of Christ and those that are asleep, those that are awake. This is the whole subject matter here concerning them that are asleep. The Greek word is K-O-I-M-A-O-M-A-L. Which literally translates unintentional sleep. Unintentional. If you lay down to sleep, that's intentional. If you lay down and you die, unintentional. Concerning them that are asleep, concerning those sleeping, concerning those lying asleep, concerning those falling asleep from time to time. Those are all different translations and all accurate. This is the euphemism that I was talking about. From a figure of speech point of view, it's a metaphor. This word for sleep that I gave you comes from a word that is spelled K-O-I-M-E-T-E-R-I-A. K-O-I-M-E-T-E-R-I-A. Two long E's. Koimateria means cemetery. That's where we get the word cemetery. Of course, you will remember John record where Lazarus sleepeth and Jesus just plainly said he's dead. See, the euphemism changed the literal reality in that statement. That ye sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. Even as others also, the word also must be added. It means even as the rest, R-E-S-T. The Greek word is L-O-I-P-O-S, meaning the rest. Literally meaning remaining ones, even as others, remaining ones. What type of remaining ones? You have to go back to the previous verses preceding this, where Paul, by revelation, said, those that are without, to them that are without, ye sorrow not even as others also who are without. They're not believers. They're not brethren. Which have no hope. Those outside of Christ or outside of the brethren. They have no hope. For the natural man at best then. The answer is just this life. There is nothing hereafter. Therefore by the sheer logic of that principle. The deduction would indicate, well, man, whatever you can get that pleases you, that blesses you, you better get it in the here and now. Because when life is over, that's all you got. Now, the other side will be, if they have no hope, they will fabricate the hope and that's spiritualism. That's the occult side of it. And the unbelievers without hope will 
either move one way or the other. And you can see this in all history. I'm going to give you the quotes here. You see, all of us that know anything about philosophy and have worked philosophy know that Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and all these men more or less taught the immortality of the soul, especially Plato. A man by the name of Ovid, O-V-I-D, a Greek, wrote the following. Souls have no share in death. When their earlier haunt is abandoned, they dwell in their new abodes and live on in the home that receives them. Of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Aeschylus, A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S. Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. Theocritus, T-H-E-O-C-R-I-T-U-S. Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. Catalyst, C-A-T-U-L-L-U-S. No one awakes and arises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of life. Lucretius, L-U-C-R-E-T-I-U-S. These that I've read here in quotation are all great philosophers and brains. Socrates said, Death is one of two things. Either such that the dead is nothing and has no perception, or else it may be a removal and change of the soul's residence from this place to another. If then death be such as this, an unconscious sleep, I call it gain. For in that case all time seems to the dead no longer than a single night. But on the other hand, if it be a departure from hence to another region, and the saying be true, that in that other world are all the dead, what could be a greater blessing than this? They that are there are every way happier than those who are here, and above all, for the time to come they are immortal, if what is said holds true. From the Apology of Socrates. That capsulizes the great philosophical teachers and leaders and training that has permeated our culture, all Christianity, unto this day. You will remember that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not. The Stoics were fatalists, the Epicureans or the jolly gang, you know, eat, drink, make merry. There you have it. And everything that's said by all these top people is all contrary to it. And yet what they have said is what the so-called, quote, Christian, end of quote, have generally propounded throughout all history. At best, the immortality of the soul. And... That when you die, 
you go someplace alive. A very simple little logical principle should have settled it for anybody that could think. And that is, why should Christ have to return to make anybody alive if they're already up there and alive? Then they're dead down here and alive up there. So they're alive up there. He must leave them up there and come down and make them alive. Now we've got twins. I just for the life of me can't see why they can't see it. Verse 14, 4, and that's the Greek word gar, G-A-R. This introduces the reason. That we have hope and that we do not sorrow wailing away all the time. If, the word if, literally you should translate since. If we believe it or if we don't believe it, it doesn't make any difference. He's coming back, he's coming back, right? But since we believe. That Jesus died and rose again. Even so them also which sleep in Jesus. Will God bring with him. For since we. We who? We as Christians. We as brethren. Since we believe. That Jesus died. And what? Rose again. Jesus died. Because of sin. He who knew no sin became what? He laid down his life. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? And without sin there would be no what? Since we believe that Jesus died, complete Savior, able to save to the uttermost, and rose again, The dying is one phase, but the rising again is the guarantee of his return. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe this. Because we couldn't believe that he rose again if he hadn't what? That's axiomatic. In his death, we were identified with him. In his resurrection, we were also identified. But the resurrection is the guarantee. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe God raised him up, thou shalt be what? And then comes his speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is the external manifestation in the senses world of the internal reality and presence of the resurrected ascended Christ. Boy, don't you see how speaking in tongues becomes so important? It's the only proof you have. Josephus could write that they all went and saw Jesus' resurrected body. But Josephus could have lied. But it cannot be a lie. If you are born again and you speak in tongues, she is born again, she speaks in tongues, you're born again, I'm born again. Speaking in tongues is the proof of the resurrection. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, even so, using the words even so gives us the complete one accord between Jesus being raised and our being raised. In other words, between God and his saints, between Jesus Christ and God's born-again believers. You ever drawn yourself a little man? You know, he's got a head, and he's got a body, you know, feet at the bottom. You know, that's another thing I was going to use the blackboard for. This is so tremendous in here if you can just sit and think it through and work it in your heart and life. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, even so, even so, what happens to the head happens to the rest of the body. And Christ is the head of what? The body, the church, up there you got the head, got the body. Even so, even so, now forget this here. You'll see it later anyways because it's going to be absolutely beautiful when we get it put together. Where your head is, your shoulders have to get there and your ribs and your arms, your body, leg. Okay, suppose you take this head 10 miles up and the dead in Christ would rise first, the rest would be changed to join him in the air to make what? One body. With the head. Wherever the head is, the rest of the body has to be. Even so. Even. That's the word even so. Even so. Them also which sleep. This I worked on real carefully too. Because this section is just phenomenal. Like the whole word, I guess, when you get into it deep enough. It's an aorist passive participle going to be in a one-time occurrence, that's for sure. Even them also which sleep. I think the best translation literally according to usage I can give you of this is them that were put to sleep. Now you think about that a minute. Even so them also which sleep, or that one I just gave you, them that were put to sleep. I gave you the original word a little while ago, unintentional sleep, remember? Here we're talking about death. Who is the author of death? The devil. Death is of the adversary. Therefore, them that were put to sleep is accurate because who killed them? That's why it's so accurate. Put to sleep. By whom? The devil. And the only reason that this can happen is because of sin. 
most of the Bible scholars, and I think perhaps all of them as I know them, teach that this is putting to sleep like a mother puts her baby to sleep. That cannot be. Because a mother putting her baby to sleep, baby wakes up. That is not a mother putting her baby to sleep here. It is those who were put to sleep unintentionally. They didn't deliberately want to die. They died in Jesus. The word in is the word through. And that, of course, is the most difficult part of this verse, perhaps. Through Jesus. They were not put to sleep through Jesus. Through Jesus means those that are Jesus's, his, the Christian believers only. And it literally is the effect wrought by him. The best translation I can give you of the latter part of this verse that I know is, will God through Jesus bring with him? That's the best I can give you. This is one of the verses that they use to say Jesus was God. Them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Since Jesus is coming back and God's going to bring with him, therefore God is Jesus and Jesus is God. I would like for you, at least in your mind, to circle these words as they appear in here really significantly interesting. In verse 14, you have the word Jesus twice and the word God once. In verse 15, you have the word Lord twice. In verse 16, you have the word Lord, you have the trump of God, and the dead in Christ. You have Lord God Christ in verse 16. In verse 17, you have the word Lord twice. I think it's in this section that Bollinger has a lengthy footnote. Bollinger has in Jesus equals through Jesus. Appendix 10451. Well, that's the preposition. Now, he says this. This stands in the Greek between the words sleep and bring. This word stands between sleep and bring. You got that? And I gave you that translation that I said will God through Jesus bring see where I put it to which does it belong sleep in Jesus is an expression not found elsewhere in verse 16 the dead in Christ are spoken of with which may be compared 1 Corinthians 15 18 and the proper meaning of dia with the genitive is through. Though it is wrongly translated in Matthew, Mark, 1 Timothy, Hebrews. And among in 2 Timothy, 2, 2. The context will show that through is the meaning as the revised version renders it in the margin. 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace, reconciliation, sonship, the Holy Spirit's gifts, victory, and many other blessings. Death is not a blessing, but an enemy inflicted by the Lord, Revelation, and permitted by him. It is the work of the devil whose works he came to destroy. It is better, therefore, to take the words through Jesus with bring and read. God will, through Jesus, bring with him. God will, through Jesus, bring with him. Them also which sleep will God, through Jesus, bring with him. It's how I worked it. Same basic difference. In harmony with John, Philippians, that's Bollinger. Fine piece of work. This will God through Jesus bring with him. The word God is the emphatic word in this verse. The word bring is the word lead. Interesting, isn't it? Will God through Jesus lead with him? Look, we're going to get to this, but the head you're going to find out is not coming down to the earth, upon the earth in this chapter here, but he's going to be up in the clouds. Therefore, he's got to lead together. Lead. With is the Greek word son, S-U-N. He's going to lead up together, this way, with him. Verse 15. Four. Second time it appears here. Four, which introduces the authority given for the former statement now. This, this what? This which follows. This which now follows. We say unto you. And it's real significant that the Unto you is the emphatic part of this verse. You would think it'd be the word of the Lord or coming of the Lord and all that, but isn't. The emphatic part is this we say unto you, unto you. By is the word in, I-N. The word of the Lord. I did not check the Aramaic, so I cannot tell you. I can go with either by or in. It'd be simple to go by because it'd be the truth anyways. But if it's in, in the way in which the word of the Lord was revealed to me, that's how I gave it to you. But this which follows is by revelation. That's what he's saying. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Remember the prophet's Old Testament, the word of the Lord came. That's revelation, the word of the Lord. It's that figure speaking for that which the man wrote or said. That we, which are alive, meaning the living. It is significant that even in the day of the apostle Paul, he was looking for the return of Christ. Because if it's your hope today, then it must also have been what? 
is hope. That's why the we is, are in here. That we which are alive. Paul didn't know when the gathering together would come. No more, sir, than you do. And remain. We which are alive, remain. Well, if you're alive, you're remaining. The word remain is also used in verse 17, the only two places in the Bible that this Greek word is translated remain. Only used twice. And remain living unto the coming. And the word coming is the word parusa of the Lord. Shall not, shall not, literally translated it is, by no means, not at all. Double emphasis. <laughs> Prevent is precede. Them which are asleep. If the church is a body class, if the church is a body, then if the head is coming, what has to happen to the rest of the body? Has to be joined to it. It's a gathering the other. How could your head walk into this room without you? That'd be a sight. Okay, the head is returning. That's why you have the gathering together with the return of Christ. Because the head's coming and he will join together, lift up, raise up, bring together the whole what? Body. Verse 16 and 17 are one verse. Four, and this is the word hoti meaning because. Not going to precede them which are asleep. Why? Because. The Lord himself, a double emphasis. The Lord, well if it's the Lord it's himself. But he puts it in, the Lord himself. Shall, absolute tense, descend from heaven. And it's singular here, heaven instead of plural. With a shout. With is the word en. En. It's inclusive. Meaning, remaining within. It's going to be real inclusive, the dead and the living believers. That's why it's with. The word shout is a command. Command. Get up. That's the command. Ring the alarm clock. With a shout. With. Watch these inclusives. With. A shout with the voice, with the trump of God. Three of them, right in that verse, quite inclusive. With a command, with the voice of the archangel. 
literally it could be translated a voice such as an archangel uses. And this archangel here has to be Michael, not Gabriel. Because Michael is the warrior, the fighter, the one who fights for God's people. Here we're going to have the gathering together. That's why he's going to make the announcement. Michael. Jude 9 is another reference you might want there. With the trump of God is a special sound or trump of God that I don't know anything else about. It has nothing to do with the first trumpet of Revelation or the seventh. That's Israel. This is the gathering together of the born again believers dead and alive at the time of the return of Christ, the Perusa. And the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, the ones we discussed earlier in verse 13, shall rise first. It's a verb form of resurrection, which I know. But it's not a resurrection because biblically in a resurrection, everybody has to be dead. Here, not everybody is dead. Some are dead and some are what? That's why it's to rise. The dead, the fallen asleep in Christ shall rise. The body goes to dust. The soul exits at man's last breath. The only way a soul life is carried on is through physical offspring, the progeny. The life of the flesh, the soul life is where? In the blood. Now that's carried on. The spirit in the believer goes back to God who gave it. So this is disintegrated. This is man's last breath. This goes back to God who gave it. Now, those asleep or those dead in Christ are going to get up. The same God who formed and made the sperm and the ovum to bring about a physical body like I have and like you have which has life, which is the soul in that body. I have no doubt that if that God could do that with a sperm and with an ovum, that he can, through Jesus Christ, return, get people to rise who are dead and have been dead since the day of Pentecost or the day after. And in that gathering together, they will be given a new body. Which will be fashioned like unto his body. And the life in that new body is called a quickening spirit. What is it? That's all I know about it. But I have no problem with that. Because I have a body now and I'm living. 
and it happened through a simple little old sperm and an ovum, egg. Certainly the same God who formed and made that could and will bring the dead to life and those which are living at the time he is going to change. People say, well, you're going to know anybody in heaven? What do you know anybody here? Same God made it possible for you to know somebody down here. Don't you think he might still have opportunities to make it possible for us to know each other in the hereafter? Why, how stupid to believe opposite. That's right. No doubt about it. Shall rise first. Now that doesn't mean three weeks before. It's just in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ are raised and the alive are changed. Then is time. Then or thereafter. The Greek word is E-P-E-I-T-A. That's why it could be translated thereafter. We which are alive and remain. Well, if you're alive, you're remaining shall be what caught up there it is caught up because on the first part of his appearing the parousa the return of christ he does not come upon the earth he comes to it but not upon it that's why we must be caught what up it is from this word caught up that they get the word rapture talking about the rapture of the church because the Latins translated the Greek word harpazo h-a-r-p-a-z-o that's the word which means snatch up you know wow grab them like an owl grabs a mouse on the ground wow takes it up the Latins translated, the Latin word is rapturo, R-A-P-T-U-R-O. And it's from that Latin word that they've transliterated into the English word of rapture. And it means caught up. Caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, in the clouds. And that's that illustration I gave you earlier. He doesn't come down to earth. Here's the earth. He doesn't come down to earth. He just comes there. The dead in Christ rise what? Then we which we are alive and shall be caught up, snatched up. Together with them in the what? In the air. That's how the body gets joined to the head. Caught up together with them in the clouds, literally amid the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And that's the great meeting. That's the great meeting. That's why I said when I began tonight, 
when you want to teach this whole section, you can call it the pole star of believers, which is that one guiding great star that you set your heart and life and soul, everything on. That's the return. Or if you like it any better, you could call it the great meeting. Because that's exactly what it is. When he comes, that's the great meeting. Boy, and this is fantastic in here. This great meeting could be translated the meeting with the Lord. Where? In the air. So we had in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, meaning upward. And that is real significant to me because the upward part is whose dominion? Who's the prince of the power of the air? With the return of Christ, who takes over? The Lord and the saints. The gathering together is in Satan's domain. In the what? Air. In the air. These words in the meeting with the Lord, to meet with the Lord in the air. These words, to meet the Lord. We're going to meet him where? In the air. It is used in Greek literature. Listen to this. Beautiful. Of a ceremonial meeting with a person of a renowned position. <laughs> We're going to meet what? Okay. We are where? Here. We go to meet the Lord where? It's a ceremonial meeting of someone very prominent. That's the Greek usage. But it is to meet him there and to return to the place from whence they came. We go to meet him in the air. Then after a period of time, he comes with his saints to the earth. That's the usage of this meeting here. Look, very simple. You go meet me at the airport with your motorcycles, you bring me home. <laughs> That's up. You go meet someone, you bring him back to your house with you. Pick him up at the airport, bring him home with you. We go meet the Lord in the air. And then we come back with him where we came from. That's why the word of God teaches that the saints are coming back to the earth with the Lord. And it's all wrapped up in the meeting in the air. This is the one great new body. The church. The gathering together. The dead rising, the living changed. The dead are the corrupted who have to put on what? The living are mortals who have to put on what? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. <laughs> to meet the Lord in the air. It's not just so shall we ever be with the Lord. The word with is the word son. Not just a with him, but a like him. 
with to the end that we are like him, the Lord. The word so there and so, it's the word so, that's the word thus, and that's the emphatic word here. And thus, thus, and so, in this manner, in this fashion, in this shape, evermore, with the Lord shall we be. This is not only the great meeting, it is the great one new body, it is union with the Lord. In a new body, fashioned like unto his body forevermore. Verse 18. Wherefore, so then, comfort. The word comfort is the same word that I gave you in the previous session. Beseech. Verse 10. The word comfort is to give a quiet type of peaceful acquiescence, but it's all quietness, all peacefulness is also encouragement. To encourage toward a more worthy endeavor. Wherefore, so then, be comforted and encouraged and comfort and encourage one another. It's a constant teaching that has to be given to people that we comfort one another and encourage one another in these words, in these words which have been given here. Been so many, many theological arguments over the simplicity of this stuff, and they're still going on. When I think the word is so simple, if you got eyes to see, it's plain. If you got ears to hear, it can be understood. The great opportunity that theologians and Bible scholars have always had is to fit the return of Christ with the great tribulation period of the book of Revelation. Because scriptures like shall not come into wrath, all that is not taken as literally accurate. Tonight I want to give you the three great theological arguments. And these you should know and understand and learn. So that when you run into people in the future who talk about these things that you don't have to be stupid. Those who believe that the gathering together comes before the great tribulation are called pre-PRE tribulationists. That's us. Pre-tribulational. P-R-E-T-R-I-B-U-L-A-T-I-O-N-A-L. That's pre-tribulation who believe, as we do, that the gathering together will come before the great tribulation and that the church of the body will not go through the tribulation. Another group believe in what is called mid-tribulational. M-I-D. That the church at the midpoint of the great tribulation 
That's at the end of the three and a half years that are mentioned in the 70 weeks of Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 24, 27, is when it will occur. And the third group is the post-tribulation. You see, if you understand the words as tribulation, then pre, mid, post, you should understand. Pre, mid, post. Then you also have what is referred to as premillennial and postmillennial. Premillennial means those who believe he will come before the thousand years that are mentioned in Revelation. Postmillennial means after. What's a millennium? That's what the word premillennial means. Postmillennial. How could you comfort one another with these words? You could go through all the tribulations. Well, that's all I'm going to do tonight.